This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. We are sashaying around the state for this week's tour to visit the Missouri Arts Council's four featured July artists, a sculptor of monsters and fantastical creatures in Farmington, a mixed-media artist in St. Charles who has been known to use bullet casings in her work, a Springfield-based watercolour artist who paints fleeting moments, and a photographer in Kansas City who seeks to capture a hint of the world beyond the surface. It's a busy one, so here we go. When someone mentions Bigfoot, the fact that we can conjure up in our mind's eye a nine-foot ape-like creature is thanks to artists who have taken the words of legend, folklore and purported sightings and translated them into visual icons. Artists like Kendall Hart, who has been sculpting monsters since he began cutting his plastic dinosaur figures up as a child and gluing them back together to form new species of Godzilla-dinosaur hybrids. For Kendall, this ability to give form to any creature he wanted was where the magic of art lay. Of course, there are a limited number of jobs in the world for life-size monster making. So he got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Studio Arts, trained in graphic software design and headed off into a career of corporate art direction. But the pull of monsters, dragons, goblins and Japanese kappas never went away. And so he carried on creating them. Kendall's art appears in graphic novels and books, as well as in toy and horror film concepts. And that love of sculpture he had as a child playing Frankenstein to his dinosaurs continued, but now turned into life-size creations of all manner of legendary monsters, which pop up in botanical gardens, natural history museums and private collections across the country. Kendall Hart, how fabulous to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very honored to be here. I'm guessing that as a child, a dream about monsters under the bed was actually not a nightmare for you. <laughs> not at all. That would have been a welcome encounter. <laughs> <laughs> I had not realized just how many legendary monsters or cryptids there are in America alone. The human bird Mothman of West Virginia, the 20-foot tuskied Garrow lizard of Arkansas, and of course, Missouri's own Momo, a Bigfoot-esque creature with glowing orange eyes, last seen in Louisiana, Missouri in 1972, and of course, the Ozark Howler and many, many more. Do you have a favorite monster? I do. I was born in Alton, Illinois, and anyone from that immediate area will know of the Pisaw Bird. That is my favorite legendary creature. They've got a, they've always had a very large depiction of it painted on the cliffs alongside the Mississippi River. And as a kid seeing that, I'm like, that used to be here. That thing was here. Someday I'm going to make one of those. I've got to find out all I can <laughs> about it. It's still a lifelong dream to sculpt a life-size Pisaw Bird and install it on the cliffs overlooking there. Probably a bronze of it, I think. And, uh, but uh, yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> Easy answer. Describe the Piesaw? Piesaw bird, yeah. Um, it is, wow, it is such a conglomeration of creatures. 
It is reportedly having a, a bear slash human face head with large antlers, a long serpentine body with large scales, clawed avian feet, and very large wings, uh, a tail long enough to wrap around the body multiple times. So yeah, a Google search it might do a better justice of my description, but it is a fantastic wild creature that was reportedly sighted, um, gosh, can't I think what year, a couple hundred years ago during explorations of the river bend. But there's also an asterisk that that may have been a fabricated story to begin with, which is the mystery is always the allure of these things. So <laughs> that's the pie saw in 90 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. How busy are you making monsters? Are there a lot of private collectors who want a Kendall Hart original? And, and also, how many other sculptors are out there doing what you do? Oh, wow. I'm always busy because I only get about two full-body life-size creatures done a year. Busts are usually what collectors go for, and more often than my originals, the private collectors want recreations of movie creatures and uh, some creatures perhaps in the public domain, like a Frankenstein's monster or something. But uh, I really build my full life-size ones for myself. It's what I've tried to gravitate to, but the almighty dollar uh, <laughs> pulls me back in, and you know, when your project comes knocking, I can almost never say no. Are there copyright issues making monsters that are in movies and tv there can be if you attempt to resell reproductions of them if you try to mass market those uh the few i do i do as a parody of that creature or inspired by whatever creature has been depicted or and particularly if you ever nail the exact likeness of a copyrighted version of a creature it gets complex and there's some a bit of gray area, but if you make a dragon that looks precisely like one that appeared in a movie, well, then you'll get noticed. Uh, and also the scale, really the scale at which you're producing these things. If you're making reproductions, you're definitely going to get noticed by lawyers more powerful than your own. <laughs> <laughs> Almost all legendary monsters come with a lot of backstory and description. So you've got plenty to go on. But have there been times when you've thought, hang on, I can make this better. And you've played Frankenstein with a cryptid of legend? I do not take that liberty because the descriptions, I amass as many descriptions as I can and try to mix them all together, staying faithful to any documented, historically citable resource. <laughs> I've not done that yet. I've not gotten to a crypt because they're so fascinating to me. And I think they're they're so varied in their nature that I don't have to embellish on them. Just getting them done is... To me, the hugest challenge because they take all these different descriptions that are second, third hand, and they've been grapevine down the uh, down the decades and centuries. So I, I haven't seen much need to embellish them yet. <laughs> well, you cite pulp fantasy, surrealism, and the exaggerated realism of Norman Rockwell as your inspirations. But I also see a lot of H.R. Geiger, the guy who did the terrifying extraterrestrial species in the movie Alien. I see Geiger sometimes in some of your work too. How hard is it when you're designing your own monsters? How hard is it to out-horror masters like Geiger? <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that is so open to interpretation. Uh, I think you can only compete. I don't think you can <laughs> plan to beat them. Or um, Yeah, he's a huge influence. Harryhausen's probably the top influence in my work. But yeah, and those are different ends of, this, of the horror spectrum between those two. And I like to fall somewhere in between the middle. 
So tell me a little bit about the process of making the sculptural versions of your fantastic creatures. These days, you no longer fabricate in your garage, right? You have your own studios, Grimstone Studios in Farmington. But how are they made? Uh, They start out very industrial. Uh, I typically will start with a thumbnail sketch, just pencil sketch, get the rough idea down, then refine that idea. And then I... um, I, I do change my recipe every time. I kind of reinvent the wheel every time I build these things because there's no college degree available for it. There's, But uh, a typical build will go from sketch to a prototype or maquette that I may wire up about a 120th scale, just a tabletop version of it, and just the skeleton inside. And I would present that wire frame with a welder I'd be working with. And like, here's the dimensions. And if the wire frame maquette will stand, then I know I've got the pose balanced, and then we can move forward welding up the interior uh, armature um, out of a steel. And over that, I place bulk foam and then carve that in, again to the rough, next stage of a rough shape. Then over that, I hard shell it with fiberglass, house paints, uh, just a variety of materials until the final layer, which is typically epoxy clay of some kind, so I can get in the very final details. It, it gains a lot more structural support at that point, and it can take almost any kind of finish I want, paint, uh, faux bronze, and then a simple clear coat. But I'm working towards moving away from a welded interior frame and trying to see if the outer hard shell can fully support a creature. And I've just started that process this year and incorporating 3D printing and 3D uh, sculpting into my workflow to try to copy and paste more of me because there's not I can't hire any other life-size monster sculptors to work with me. There's very few. And um, so like, well, I need more Kindles. So like, okay, every 3D <laughs> printer I have is another Kindle that's going to create chunks of monsters, shags of fur, teeth, fingernails, eyeballs, those kind of things overnight. So I started learning 3D sculpting as part of that process and trying to modernize my own technique here. And uh, I plan to launch a YouTube video outlining how I build these creatures uh, next month when I start this next life-size tree folk creature for a library. So, I mean, you move these around with a steel armature inside. They must be incredibly heavy. Yes. My nine-foot-tall Bigfoot clocks in about 400 pounds. And it's a 400 pounds distributed over nine feet of length. So he takes a minimum of four people to move safely. It's better he gets moved with six. Another reason I'm trying to get weight out of these creatures um, I don't think I'll ever get them lightweight, but I'll uh, get them down to the low hundreds, hopefully. And Back in 2017, you gathered together your sculptures and designed an exhibit called Gardens of Myth, which populated the Powell Gardens at Kansas City's Botanical Gardens. Tell us who was in this exhibit and, and what became of all of those creatures. Where are they all now? Oh, wow. Um, let's see. We had uh, Bigfoot, a 28-foot-long dragon, a rearing full-size, you know, everything was full-size, uh, <laughs> unicorn, three goblins, a uh, Norwegian troll, Japanese kappa, a minotaur, and a gargoyle. And I think I might be forgetting a creature, but... A leprechaun. A leprechaun, yes, actually. And, I could, and I'll start by answering where he is. He's on the other side of this town in a good friend's uh, living room. <laughs> <laughs> I had so many friends and family come and help on that show. It was such a such a a daunting task that after the show I gave some of these creatures to friends and family. Three goblins are in my mother-in-law's garden and the gargoyle is also in her garden. <laughs> and Bigfoot you still have? Bigfoot's here, the trolls here, 
and the Kappas here. The Dragon, after two years of touring, took too much damage from shipment and from the weather and from... Oh, I built these things as sturdy as I can, but they're no match for squirrels and birds and <laughs> other nesting vermin. <laughs> Uh, the unicorn and dragon had to be euthanized. I'm sad to say. <laughs> <laughs> so that exhibit kind of gave rise to a museum project idea that I guess you are still working on with a, a man called John Burroughs, who has a background in museums. And your idea is called the World Myth Museum. So tell us a little bit about what sparked this idea. And is that vision still current? Are you still working on that? Yes, that vision is my magnum opus. It's what I want to do with the back half of my career. And I'm working on that goal every Every day. And what inspired that project was uh, Nashville rush hour <laughs> traffic. <laughs> <laughs> and what I mean by that is transporting the creatures in, in the midst of that and uh, you know, trying to hit this deadline. You're trying to haul two large box trucks worth of fantasy creatures, get them to a location on time and with minimum damage. And uh, just those more like, you know, this has been fun for two years of displaying them, but like, what if they were indoors and they stayed indoors and I build them in the back of this building and push them to the front of the building and they stay there not to be driven, you know, multi-states away for display and not subject to the adverse elements of weather. And uh, so, all you know, two years of that, like, okay, I'm going to stop doing the botanical tour. I'm going to stop, rebuild how I make these and I'm going to pursue this. That's that where the, the indoor museum idea came from. Like, that's what I want. I started doing my research. Like, I don't see a comprehensive myth museum in the entire world. Like, then that's what I'm going to build. I'm always drawn to what's never been done. And, uh, yeah, that was the, the birth of it. So how is the fundraising going for that? I presume you have to raise millions of dollars to make it happen. And we've got thousands of it. <laughs> well, moment. it's a good start. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a start. Um, yeah, we... <laughs> It's going. We're gonna get ready to tour with uh, the next two creatures that have been rebuilt and designed on a smaller. Well, they're full size creatures, but the overall show is going to be uh, traveling exhibits, pop up exhibits, and those two creatures will be ready this fall, and they're going to start touring, and they're going to be our salesmen to help pitch this to the world. Perfect. Well, at least some of Kendall Hart's fabulous creatures and other worldly monsters reside in his website at GrimstoneStudios.com. And one day, hopefully, his sculptures will find a home at the World Myth Museum, which you can read more about at MythMuseum.org. Kendall, thanks for giving so many children nightmares and for taking <laughs> us on your monster-making journey today. That is, uh, that is quite the compliment, and I am proud to have done so. <laughs> More to come, more to come. <laughs> there is no doubt that the pandemic has unleashed huge destruction upon us over the past two years. But there are also many examples of people who use this time of change to find or rediscover their creative voice. People like St. Charles-based mixed-media artist and photographer Kim Bolden-Jones, who started making art for herself during the pandemic as a way to stay sane amidst the social and political tumult. But when she posted the works on social media, friends wanted to buy them. And in just two years, her works have appeared in multiple shows, not only in St. Louis and Kansas City, but also Laguna Beach, California and Indianapolis. Although she did minor in art in college, she considers herself an emerging mixed media artist who just happens to be at a more mature stage of life. 
And creating art is quite a departure from her career as a health education teacher and an internationally recognized and sought after educator and conference presenter specializing in HIV STD programs for college aged students. She raised $1.7 million for a rural hospital and three clinics in the developing world, helped change laws in Ethiopia so that donors could give directly to hospitals, and she is the chair of the board of directors of the Chicago-based Global Youth Leadership Institute. By day, she is a health teacher and counsellor at the John Burroughs School in St. Louis. And after hours, she learns how not to get stuck in the resin she uses for her collage works. Kim, what a life. I am so happy to have you on the show. I was like, who are you talking about? I was looking around the room. (laughs) (laughs) You appear to be taking the art world by storm. Are you shocked, surprised and delighted by all the attention? I am on the floor shocked because... (laughs) You know, I hadn't really painted in like, you know, it shows how old I am, but decades had gone by. And you're right, I was grasping for sanity during COVID. And I thought, hey, I've got all this old dried paint in the basement. Maybe I should paint something. And it became like this wonderful thing, surprise in my, you know, later years. I shouldn't say later. I should say mid midlife. <laughs> We're always beginning new phases of life there. That's right. right. Next chapter, right. So this new lease of art life, it started with a stack of COVID, wear a mask, reminder postcards. So what was the spark that stopped you putting the postcards into the recycling like everybody else and instead turn it into art? Well, that's kind of funny. I'm on an advisory board at Webster University for the School of Communications and one of the members they did like this ad campaign about six feet social distancing and wear a mask. And they had these postcards and I ordered some and I thought, these are so cool. I don't want to just throw them away. And I said, I think I'm going to make a little art thing out of them. And that was like genie out of the bottle. And the next (laughs) thing you know, my kids are looking at me like, what is going on here? So, so what did that first one look like? Like, what did you do with it? I did a mixed media collage and I really like 3D. I like things to pop off of the page. And so I started with, I made like a a COVID shield. I took some plexiglass and I started making things like in this collage and I got news headlines and all that. And then George Floyd happened and I incorporated that into that summer. And so it just kind of spun into this frenzy I was on and I guess I'm still on. You write in your Missouri Arts Council artist statement that art has opened doors in my brain that I didn't know existed. Tell us about those doors. Well, I always thought of myself as creative, but I never knew how um, organic I was like I you know as a mom I have three kids and you know with three kids you're always kind of managing things and I was you know planned and you know this day and that day we do this and that but suddenly when I do art it's funny I sit down with a blank canvas and I never know what I'm going to end up with I don't usually have a plan it just organically happens and I really didn't know I had that in me and now it's it's just interesting to me how I access this part of myself that I thought I was so measured and, (laughs) 
you know, everything has a place and all that. And then I realized I am crazy and not crazy in a bad way, but crazy in a flexible way where I pivot and I do something I don't like it. And I, I have no problem in painting over things. I can easily look at it and go, eh, don't like it and paint over it and start over again. And, and it's been so much fun for me to access that part of my brain. So when you sit down with a blank canvas without a plan, what is the first mark you make on the canvas? Is it paint? Is it glue? Is it a swish? Like, where does it start? Yes. (laughs) All of the above. All of the above. Well, I kind of think it depends because what I've been doing lately, I've been really interested in incorporating my photography into my artwork. And so I might go through my photos. I've been taking photos for years. I mean, I've always been a photographer. My work in Africa has enabled me to take some really beautiful work. And then I've always been one of those people that just takes pictures all the time. So there's certain pictures I'll say, wow, I really like this one. What can I do with it in an art setting? How can I make this photo come more alive or make it more intense? And I usually start with looking at the photo and saying, do I want to cut it up? Do I want to make it 3D? Do I want to paint over it? Or that kind of thing. So it kind of starts sometimes recently with the photograph. I look at it and see what sparks interest for me. It's often hard to properly behold an artwork when you, you just see them on a web image. So looking through your site, all I can do is look at the photographs on the site, but your work has so much range in it. There are <laughs> Teletubby style creatures in a garden of flowers and real bullet casements over newspaper headlines about gun control and this photography, like you say, collaged into the paintings. And there are abstracted shapes that morph into buildings and works which refuse to be bound by the edge of the frame. They peek out above the frame and it feels like you have been in this little tight bottle artistically and suddenly the top has flown off and you have and so much art is coming out how does it feel to you right now yeah exactly <laughs> that way it's is is really interesting to me because I am enjoying all of it like I discovered resin and I'm like oh resin you know and and, and so everything is exciting at this point and I think that what's great about being older is that I appreciate things more. And so now every turn is exciting. And what can I learn how to do and all that. And, and so you're right, when you look at the body of work I've created, it is very different. And, and for me, it just shows how much capacity a person has, you know, Mm. like, I think a lot of times we hem ourselves in, like, I'm only good at this, or I'm only good at that. And we don't explore enough. We get stuck in a groove. And I just like exploring all things. And some things come out and you're like, oh, that's crap. And then <laughs> you're like, okay, you know, put that down. You're not going to do that anymore. But sometimes you hit something and you're like, wow, this is cool. And I want to push harder on this. I want to see where this goes. And and it's been really good for me. And what's shocking to me is that it's resonating with other people. And I never expected that. That wasn't why I started painting. It wasn't to be in galleries or, and all of a sudden someone's like, Hey, I really like that. I'm interested in that. And what is this about? And all that. And I'm like, wait, really? You know, so that's been really fun. There are some artists who 
like to direct the viewer as to the idea or story behind the work. And there are others who want the viewer to find their own journey in a work. And you say that you are the latter. You want viewers to find their own journey. So I'm curious what maybe surprising stories you've heard from other people as they have interacted with your works. Well, it's kind of funny. I was uh, had a couple pieces in a show and I was standing behind a couple looking at, um, it's the one where a mom has a child and there's a blanket over the baby's mm. head. And I actually took that in Ethiopia and I heard, <laughs> it was kind of cute. They were like, you know, they were talking and they mistook it for a mom in the U.S. And what I liked about it is that art is through an individual's eyes. So the way I look at a piece is going to be different than how you look at it. And we all have our different interpretations of what art is. And it's really fun to think about all the different ways someone can interpret the work I did. Because some things I have stories for and some things I just don't. And I actually like my pieces that I don't really have a story for because then the story changes for me every time I look at it. And I think that's interesting too. Um, So I like to see people have their own kind of vision of what it means or what it doesn't mean. On your website, you don't have any titles for any works. Is that (laughs) on purpose? Do you have titles for the works when they're in galleries? Or do you like to not title things because that leads the viewer? Well, it's funny. I don't have titles on my website because I like people to come up with what they would like to title it. But galleries kind of like you to have a title. (laughs) They kind of force you into that box. And I will say there's some work that I do. I did one last week and it's an interesting piece where I took photography and I painted on top of it and I cut it out. Well, I used all these squares and it's a village and, and immediately came to me the name of it is Town Square. Okay. And it's a play on words. But sometimes you're like struggling. You're like, I don't know, blue dot, yellow <laughs> peg. And, and and so when you go into a gallery, they want what is it called? And you're like, um, blue dot, you know, and oh, that's brilliant. And you're like, I literally just came up with that. You can always go with untitled four, but in, in Roman numerals. You know, that always right, works. exactly, exactly. So. <laughs> Your website is called hangingtime.org and you call your work Hanging Time Capsules. Tell us a little bit about that idea of hanging time. Well, it's kind of funny because I've always taken my kids to art museums since they were little, like in strollers, you know. And and one time my oldest child, he was about four or something, I said something like, oh, we're going to go to the art museum. And um, he's like, it's hanging time. <laughs> And and for him, it meant hanging things on the wall. And I just always thought about that. And so when I started doing work again, I was like, I kind of like that. And then when I say hanging time capsules, it's like, I think for me, when I do a piece, it captures time for me. So I can look at all the work I've done and I really can think about, oh, I did this that day when I was watching the news and, you know, so for me, it's time capsules. It's kind of like a photograph in my mind of what I was doing. So that's kind of how I, a little play on words there. 
You have travelled all over the world talking about incredibly important and huge challenges. And now you have found a new way to tell stories. And I wonder how you see these worlds of health, education, equity and diversity and justice combining with your art going forward. Wow, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> um, there's so many things wrong in this world. And I am a very big believer in what we can give back. And I would like my art to become more involved in making the world a better place, which sounds like, well, let's kumbaya and all that. <laughs> but I was thinking about like, how can we open up some of these doors to creativity to people that don't have the resources? You know, I've worked in Africa a long time and and thinking about how to open this creative door to other people that don't have the resources like I did, just buy some brushes and canvases and start painting. You know, it's just not easy for people. And that could be both here and abroad. It doesn't have to just be abroad and help open some doors for people that could be the next Rembrandt or something. Well, I feel sure that if anybody is going to work it out, it'll be you, Kim. <laughs> My guest has been mixed media artist and photographer Kim Bolden-Jones, and you can peruse her multifarious works on her website at hangingtime.org. And Kim, it has been lovely having you to myself for 15 minutes. Thank you so much for taking time out to chat about your new adventures in art. Well, thank you. It's been so much fun talking to you, and I really appreciate you uh, talking to me. One of the things I always wonder about is that moment which inspires an artwork. We are all surrounded by moments of intrigue and beauty, but most of us just notice them fleetingly if we see them at all. And maybe that is the fundamental difference between non-artists and artists, the ability to pay attention to the things that the rest of us overlook. My guest Alicia Farris refers to herself as a painter of life and says that her eyes are always searching for a good story to tell. Alicia is a watercolour and water media artist who has been painting and teaching professionally for 20 years, but has had an artistic eye longer than she can remember. She holds prestigious signature memberships of the National Watercolour Society and the Missouri Watercolour Society, amongst many others. And her list of art show appearances and awards spans not only the United States, but includes China and Spain, too. Back in 2017, she was commissioned by the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. to create nine large-scale paintings for its hospitality area. And every year, she paints a Santa portrait, the face of whom she chooses from nominations sent to her website and then donates all the proceeds made from those cards and prints to the charity of the nominees or the Santa's choice. I love that. These days, Alicia is based in Springfield, Missouri, and for the next 15 minutes, she is my guest. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Alicia. Thank you very much. You are clearly a master painter with an innate and well-trained eye for what makes a painting. And I love the story I read in an article about you that it was only 20 years ago or so that you decided that one of your paintings was good enough to frame and that work hangs in your bathroom, even though you describe it as pretty horrible. <laughs> Do you keep it there as a reminder of how far you've come? Well, perhaps I do. You know, <laughs> everyone has their first painting and I consider that mine, although I don't think technically it really is my first, but it was my first that I put a, a frame around and um, yeah, I guess I do keep it there to remind how far I've come and <laughs> and how far one can come in 
you know, not not too long a period of time. (laughs) Tell me about your earliest memory on your art journey. Oh, I think it goes back to when I was a child and I would always like to color and draw and days that I was home from school, let's say I was sick or whatever, and my mom and I would just color together. And that was just really special. I would just love to watch the way that she colored. She was an artist as well, although not professionally. She was a nurse by profession and then lots of other things. But I would just love to watch the way that she colored. And, you know, I just thought everyone loved art. So for you, painting is not about realistically documenting a moment or expression, but it's rather it's a starting point for a story. So talk to me about impressionistic realism in your work and and what is it that catches your eye? I look for something that inspires me and it might be a movement, it might be a color, it might be a sound or a smell and it might be just an expression on someone's face. It's not always a human subject. You know, I might see something, I might get an inspiration from an object or a scene outside or landscape or whatever, but I'm inspired by people and movement and stories that I kind of derive in my head as I see them. And when I'm painting, I'm not as worried about painting the scene or the face or the object exactly as I saw it or as somebody else might see it. But I think more, how am I going to paint that mood that was inspired in me when I was inspired by that thing that I saw? And to what extent do you think that you have always observed the world this way? And in what way has becoming a painter, has that honed your ability to to see a story in a fleeting moment more easily? Oh, I think definitely. You know, just seeing colors and light and, like I said, movement. And being a painter, as you were saying, I think artists have sort of a special sense that when they can look out into the world and see beauty in something that somebody else might just pass by and not even see at all. So I think just having more experience with color and the paints and the, and the light contrasts and the color contrasts, you, you begin to see things and notice more. I tell my students sometimes, you know, once you get to understand color, you'll be so distracted by things in the world, you know, <laughs> don't go off the road while you're driving because you, you know, you're seeing just light in a different way and colors and the way that they react to each other, you're seeing it in a whole different way. So talk a little bit about that. Is it how colors pair up with each other? Why can't most of us see what you can see? Well, artists start to see not just colors, but color temperatures. And because the light hits something, you'll always see a lighter side and a darker side, of course, but even a warmer side and a cooler side. So artists start to see differences even in the same hue. Hmm. They'll see the warm and the cool in that hue, depending on how the light hits it. And contrast in light and dark, contrast in warm and cool, contrast in colors themselves, you know, opposite colors. 
I think it's interesting that your degree is in psychology with a minor in art. Do you think your psychology background inspires your work? It helps you to see those stories that you find? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's why I have a fascination with people. I'm always, you know, from, again, from as long as I can remember, I was just watching people and trying to imagine what their life is like and what they're thinking and what they're going home to and what kind of their story is. So I still do that. And um, that's definitely, that weighs into my painting figures. I see a story every time I see someone, you know, and uh, I always have that fascination of what's going on in someone's head and what's going on in someone's life and what is someone all about, you know, and that's what I'm trying to paint, I think. And you take a camera with you everywhere. So the paintings that you paint are, they start with a photograph that you've taken, but that's just a starting point for you, right? Then the story takes over. I do. I take a lot of pictures and luckily we have cameras on our phones now. (laughs) And that makes it really easy. But um, like the other night, my husband and I were in a restaurant and there was a lady that went by and she had a hat on and, and the light from... I guess it was from the table that she was passing by was reflecting off of her face. And boy, I tried to get my camera up real fast to capture that and I missed it. But you never know when you're going to see something that's super interesting. You know, just the way the light hits someone's face or just a mood or something like that that you run into. But I always have my camera ready and I'm not always taking pictures of straight on of people's faces And when I paint people, I don't always paint them probably so that they would recognize themselves because I I do kind of go off on my own story and I add things and I change things. So you just never know. There is a lovely quote on your website from one of your customers who comments that we are invited to connect with your paintings in the spirit of kindness and goodwill toward the subject of the painting. And I see that in your work, that you meet the world with an enormous sense of generosity and warmth and equanimity. How much does your own internal mood dictate or influence your painting? Do you have to be in a good mood to paint? Oh, that's a good question. Um... Sure. <laughs> you know, sometimes you you can tell where you were or where your head was or, or how you were feeling. You don't even realize until the painting's finished and you think, boy, that's dark. Or maybe I wasn't feeling well that day or something. Sure, I think mood really does weigh in when you're creating anything. There is a lovely work on your website. You've divided the works on your website up into different collections. And I think I've spent most of the time in your figurative collections. You have such a beautiful ability to capture mood and contemplation. And there is one work that I keep coming back to time and time again. And it's of a young African-American child looking up to an unknown person or thing. And it's called Whether or Not. I love that. Tell me about this work. That was one of my first serious face paintings that I did. And I was at a parade in a larger city and lots of people were everywhere. And these children were there and um, this little child was looking up and I just captured that look and that wonderment. And I painted it large it's a pretty large painting. It's on a full sheet, which is 22 by 30. And um, I did change a lot of the features, but 
I really was happy with just having captured that wonderment, the look in, in the child's eyes. You you really did. It's really a beautiful work. Well, thank you. So as well as painting, you also teach workshops all over the country as well as from home. And I'm curious what the most common frustrations are that students have with watercolour and what some of your aha moment tips are for them. I think the main watercolour journey is finding that perfect consistency of paint to water in what you want to do. For instance, I teach a lot of faces workshops where the students are working more upright and the paint is kind of flowing down the page. And it's a challenge sometimes to get to that consistency of paint and water so that the paint moves and the colors mingle themselves. We're not mixing on the palette. We're not mixing on the paper. We're not taking two colors and mixing them together. We're letting them mix on their own. We're letting them mingle on their own. So I think realizing that perfect consistency of paint that works the best with their colors is a challenging thing. You know, watercolor gets a a bad rap for being so challenging. Mm. And I guess I, I would agree that it is challenging because it has sort of a mind of its own, but it's more forgiving than people give it credit for. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) But it really is more forgiving. You know, you let it do what it does on its own. You let it just create the magic that it creates on its own. And you kind of guide it. And you just enjoy what it does on its own. So the more you paint with watercolor, the more comfortable you'll be with letting it do its thing and knowing just how much you can control and how much you really shouldn't even try. (laughs) I'm sure for a lot of people, if it was me, I'd end up with a muddy brown blob on the page. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we like control. We do. We're we're like that. And uh, I'm no different. But just knowing what you can change and what you really should just let happen is kind of more of the secret to watercolor, I think. What is on your easel right now? What's on my easel? Well, my new Santa... Definitely. It's on my easel. Santa 2022. Santa, Santa 2022. And I am always working on two or three things. I do love to do commissions. Not not everyone does like to do commissions, but I love the challenge and I love the adventure of working on someone else's dream and inspiration. So I do have a couple of, of commissions going right now. And then I've got a big acrylic that I'm going to be starting for someone. So That'll be going at the same time. So you have multiple works on the go all at once, or do you try and focus on one work until it's finished? I like to keep several going at once. And I think that keeps me from overworking and working on something beyond time that I should stop and kind of let it rest. So uh, I kind of go back and forth. I do. Well, you can see the works of Alicia Farris on her website at afarris.com. And you'll also find there a list of upcoming workshops, though the next one listed for Missouri, the next in-person one, is not until September 2023. (laughs) Alicia, thank you so much for giving us a peek into your own art journey and for making time to chat this evening. Thank you so much. 
There are so many wonderful concepts within Japanese culture which celebrate transience, the beauty of imperfection, and the elegy of impermanence. We try so hard in Western culture to be flawless and celebrate the perfect, but the real beauty of real life is in those cracks and imperfections. And for my next guest, photographer Kirk Decker, these are the aesthetics he seeks through his work an empathy towards the passing of all things and a search for mystery and depth beyond the surface of what we see. For him, the best photographs evoke images of things unseen love, hope, loss, struggle, and change. I love that his first professional photography gig was as an eighth grader shooting someone's wedding, and that his passion for photography all began when his glamorous aunt came to visit his parents' Kansas wheat farm when he was 12 years old and let him look at his world through her camera. In the intervening decades, Kirk has worked for professional portrait studios. His work is in the permanent collection of the Professional Photographers of America, and he was one of just four photographers to have an Ansel Adams inspired photograph chosen for the Boston Museum of Fine Arts show titled Ansel Adams in Our Time. Kirk lives in Kansas City with a menagerie of dogs, cats, and chickens, and he writes, a stunningly beautiful woman who tolerates his obsession. <laughs> Kirk, it is a delight to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I have to ask are the couple you photographed as an eighth grader still together? You know, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't even remember their names. <laughs> they were clearly adventurous if they wanted an eighth grader to shoot their wedding. Yeah, that's a, that's a very polite way to put it adventurous. <laughs> So tell me about the visit from your glamorous aunt from New York City and how that changed your world. My aunt was actually adopted. She was from India and she was quite a bit younger than my mom and, and kind of part hippie and jet setter and all that. And she came to visit, and, and I believe the camera she had was a Minolta 101 or something like that. It's funny that I can remember that. And she let me look through it, and it was just amazing. It was like in the movies when they look through the, the binoculars and you had the little outline on the frame, and the camera had all sorts of fancy knobs and numbers on it. And I just thought it was just a fascinating kind of a gadget. There must have been something extraordinary in those early pictures you took to persuade someone to hire you for their wedding. What was it, do you think, about your teenage eye that made your images stand out? Yeah, that's a really good question. I had been doing photography in 4 H, and it seemed to be a good fit. A lot of it seemed to come naturally to me. And I still have all of my original negatives. And a few years ago, I went through and scanned them. And it was kind of like looking at a photographer that wasn't me, but yet I was familiar with. And sometimes this kid would do really good. Sometimes he would just nail it. Other times he was just a, you know, a kid with a camera. But occasionally there would be an image in there that today is looking through it with, with fresh eyes really, really struck me. And, um, I don't, I don't know where that came from. You were a natural from the get go. I suppose so, although I, I worked awfully, awfully hard at it. Um, probably harder than anything else I've ever worked at in my life. Well, I love the idea 
that we should celebrate the imperfect rather than chase the perfect, even though I admit I am really bad at that. But when I look through your body of work of gorgeous portraits and landscapes that make you just want to step into them, I feel like they are moments of exquisite beauty and perfection. So tell me a little bit about your hunt for what is beyond the surface and that wabi-sabi of life. I think that in the photography or maybe in the arts in general, we absorb all these influences. And for me, the things that move me are usually not visual. Uh, It's reading a line in a book or listening to music and stuff. And I think what happens is we absorb those things. And then for me, when I photograph, it's kind of a re-channeling of these non-visual things into emotions that are are then visual and it is for me it is almost a a channeling it's um not anything mystical like something takes over or anything like that i see something i'm kind of interested in it i photograph it and uh, sometimes it's not till i get back home and look at the images that i actually see something and go wow that's that's really interesting Lots of your place-based works have a very otherworldly, mysterious quality to them. They're like dreamscapes in which we are compelled along a path to the unknown. What do you think draws you to those kind of scapes? I think it is kind of a feeling that there is almost another world below the surface of what we see and... um, in the photography, I'm kind of looking for that other world. And sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes it's rather dark and scary. And that's kind of what I want to come through in the, in the images. I think about flowers. And on the surface, flowers are quite pretty. And you, you see a lot of people photographing the, the surface of flowers. But the reality is that they're actually quite savage and they're really only interested in in reproducing so when I photograph something like the flower I want to do more of a portrait to capture that rawness or desire that's in the flower you have an artist statement on the Best of Missouri Hands website and you talk about the continuum between a creator and a viewer and explain that for us and why you see yourself at the viewer end of the spectrum well, there are, um, there are some photographers, I feel, who they have an idea or a vision and they have a studio space and they bring something in and they sort of create there in the studio uh, what they were feeling or saw in, in their minds. And for me, it's really uh, what interests me is kind of observing the world around me and looking for those moments you really kind of have to have both. You have to have the creative skills to manipulate your camera and things like that to make the image. And you have to be able to look for things. But for me, I, I find myself more on observing and looking in rather than I've got this idea and I'm going to make this thing happen. There is a few collections of works on your website that I want to ask you about. One of them, which I love, is called 100 Strangers. Tell us about this project and how it got started and what you're looking for in those 100 Strangers. 
That particular project is not unique to me. There's been several people who have worked with that theme. And the idea is that you approach a stranger, somebody you don't know, and you ask to take their picture. You don't sneak it from across the street or anything. You actually have to interact with the person. And some of that is really not so much about the photograph itself, but cranking up the courage to go interact with somebody you don't know. And it was a really interesting learning experience. When I first started, I would explain the project. And it seemed like the more I explained it, the more people started to back away. <laughs> and what I learned was to, and I guess that's kind of the point of the project, is you learn learn how to approach people. I would basically just compliment them on an earring or what they were wearing and say, hey, can I get a picture of you real quick? And then I would say, it's part of a project I'm doing, and everybody seemed pretty cool with that. And then as I did it, I would try to pay more attention to what the light was doing, kind of look for situations where the person I was photographing would stand out more in a, in a portrait sort of sense instead of a, just a candid, quick, rather picture sort of sense. So did people say no to you very often? Every so often, um, maybe two or three. And I would, um, I would ask once, and if they said no, I might ask at a second time saying but you know it's really cool and then i would <laughs> i wouldn't force the issue it's like I'd, I'd ask once maybe twice and if they said no then no no means no do you let them decide which shot you use i would show them to them and there was one case where the person asked me to actually delete the images and, and that was fine i went ahead and did that but 95 90 Nine percent of the time, people liked it. They felt complimented on that. So it was, it was kind of fun. It's a project that comes and goes. You have to kind of screw up your courage to go out and do it. Some days I have that courage, and some days I don't. I think you have sixty-one, so you've still got thirty-nine. Yeah, I got moments still, of courage. Got thirty-nine to go. And, <laughs> and it's it's taken much longer than I thought. There is another body of work on your website titled Handcrafted, and it is not a process that I have ever heard of before. Tell us about this Victorian recipe. This is uh, the technical word for it. It's called a salt print, which I don't find very romantic or exciting. <laughs> uh, but it is one of the earliest photographs. It might even predate daguerreotypes. Degar gets the credit for the first permanent photograph. This is a process invented by William Fox Talbot, who was kind of a slacker and didn't publish, so he, he lost out. But it's a very simple process. You can almost use household ingredients. You soak a paper in a, in a salted water solution, and then you coat it with silver nitrate that combines with the salts to then become light-sensitive. It's not very light-sensitive. You need a lot of sunlight to expose it. And it's just kind of a Back to roots, kind of a basic thing. It, it, in some ways, it almost makes me want to throw away my expensive printer <laughs> and do that. Then I come to my senses and go back to printing again. But it's got beeswax, so do you have to buff it, something? Yes. You form the image with the, the silver salts, and then you use beeswax and lavender oil together, almost like if you were waxing a car or something like that, and that kind of seals the image and, and protects it from the oxygen and other degrading factors in the environment. Mm. 
None of those works are portraits. And I wonder, is it just happenstance that you have not used this process for any portraits or do portraits not lend themselves to this kind of handcrafting salt process? One of the very first ones was a portrait and it actually looked really nice on it. Um, be honest with you, <laughs> I was doing that with more of a sales objective and usually the portraits don't sell as well to people as still lifes and things like that. There was an ulterior monetary motive behind some of those. <laughs> well, your portrait shots are gorgeous. And like I said, for me, they seem to be all about glamour and perfection and beautiful people. And I love that you said in a recent Facebook post, you'd taken a self-portrait and that uh, I guess it got accepted into a magazine. And you said you always thought that to get a portrait into a magazine, it had to be of someone who was either glamorous or weird looking. Mm -hmm. But now you're wondering if the crazed older guy <laughs> look is the, yeah. new, is the new look. What is your philosophy on portraits? I'm kind of a ADHD photographer, ADD photographer. I have a hard time sticking with one thing. But I, I do tend to kind of bounce back and forth between the portraits and the landscapes. And portraits are something I just, I love doing. I love talking to people. And I like the portraits to be more like you, the way you and I are talking right now, um, except if I were doing your portrait, there'd be a camera. And I wouldn't be hiding behind the camera trying to coax something out of you. We would just be talking naturally and occasionally we would take a photograph. And uh, on portraits, I think with people, you might start out with a basic idea or a basic pose, but as you talk to people, they will assume their own natural expressions and body movements. And then that's when you want to take the picture. That moment when people stop paying attention. Yeah. Well, to see the photography of Kirk Decker, check out his website at kirkdecker.com. And if you're in the Kansas City area between now and September the 22nd, you can see his works in person at the Buttonwood Art Space in Midtown, Kansas City, in a show titled Rhythm and Reveal. Kirk, thanks for giving me a delicious rabbit hole to disappear into <laughs> for a few hours and for making time to chat this evening. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's, it's fun talking about photography. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests, fantastical creatures sculptor Kendall Hart, mixed media artist and photographer Kim Bolden-Jones, watercolour painter Alicia Farris, and photographer Kirk Decker. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!